Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That? A radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. Hey, everybody. Hey, Eric. How you doing? Hey, Mary Angela. I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you all so much for joining us. It's Thursday. Happy Thursday, everybody. Almost Friday. Thursday's Little Friday. Did you know that? It's Friday's Eve. It is. I like Little Friday because then it means you can party like you would if it was Friday. It's like mini Friday. Yes, a small party. Or also Friday's Eve. It's fine. I'll take either one. Okay, sounds good. I'm pretty excited about our topic for today. But before we get into that, we're going to chat about what's going on in the neighborhood. What is going on in the neighborhood? I'm glad you brought that up. This last couple weeks, Next Door has been really blowing up. Before I talk about the new things, I want to talk about something I learned after something I brought up on our last episode, you know? Oh, this is regarding (laughs) the dog poo. This is regarding the dog poo. (laughs) So I was very opinionated about people cleaning up after their dogs and putting them in trash cans. And I was like, I don't understand why people get so upset about this. People on Next Door are real like angry about being like, don't put your bags of dog poop in my trash can. Well, I don't have a dog, so I did not understand this, nor did it ever happen to me where dog poop was in my trash can that I ever noticed. But apparently, this is what I learned from some dog owners. If you put dog poop in someone else's trash can, particularly if their trash can has already been dumped, the poop will sink to the bottom, even if it's in a bag. It will still smell, so it will smell up your trash can. And then when the trash gets dumped, It stays in the trash can. It sticks to the bottom because it's heavy and it's like, you know, reshaped to the bottom of the trash can. So in some cases, somebody who dumped poop in your trash can like three weeks ago could still have that poop in the trash can. And it makes it awful. And that's why people are like, please don't do that. I had no idea. So I stand corrected. I did not know about that. And now I know about that. So now I'm going to say maybe if you're going to clean up after your dog, which we, you know, appreciate you doing, Take the poop home with you and throw it away somewhere else. Now, I did mention on the last episode that maybe you're on the way to the grocery store and you can't take the poop with you because like, what are you going to do? You can't go into the grocery store with poop. So in that case, I would say maybe leave the poop strategically somewhere where you could come back up and pick it up. That would be the nice neighborly thing to do. But while I have all these opinions... This is still a hot topic of conversation on the next door because this was messaged on uh, the next door app. The uh, subject is all I would like to thank you who dispose of your pet's waste responsibly. That's the title of the post. Okay, it says putting pets waste in neighbor's trash can, which is already on the street, is perfectly acceptable. This person clearly doesn't know about that. Um, (laughs) Putting a pet's waste in a neighbor's yard waste bin is not acceptable. The plastic basically ruins the recycling of said yard waste. Please take note if the trash can on the street has yard waste in it, grass clippings, garden waste, leaves, branches, etc. Do not put your pet's waste in that can. Make sure it is a can of trash. Otherwise, bring it home with you and dispose of it responsibly. Thank you. This is posted in general to everyone. Now, people 
jumped in on this because obviously this person was like, cool, dump it in someone's trash can. Totally fine. Much like what I said last week where I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, people got in on this to the tune of about 36 comments so far. Yeah. Uh, I don't agree. It's your dog's waste. Put it in your trash can. Who said it's acceptable? It's like tires. One day it's one tire. Next day it's a pile. Residents... Home trash disposal does not include neighborhood dog waste. And that was a lot of capital letters used in that post. (laughs) I guess to weigh in on the poop question here, you can't compost animal waste. Just FYI. So if you see someone's like bag of trash clippings, you really can't just dump it there. Your best option, I guess, is to just throw it away in a plastic bag in your own trash. But what about like, okay, so if I'm going to the grocery store, then... There's usually a tra- like a public trash can out there, right, in front of the store. Is that what the recommendation would be? I can't believe I, I'm, I'm continuing this conversation about dog poop. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but see, again, it's a smell issue. So the, the response, the, the first response to that comment that I just read you was, I think you're overreacting a bit. That's what the person said. And then the other person was like, well, you're entitled to your opinion, but no, I don't think I'm overreacting. And then somebody else jumped in and said, when our trash is picked up, the entire trash can is not dumped. The trash bags are lifted out of the can. So the little bags of poop remain. Please don't put your dog's poop in your neighbor's trash. Thanks. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think we've all learned, like, maybe don't. And if you have to go to the grocery store, yeah, use a public trash can. Anyway, not that we're telling dog owners what to do. Right. We're not. It's free country. Absolutely not. But I just I just wanted to clarify because I learned something new after talk, which is the whole point of this show. Right. I didn't know about it. And now I do. And so I just mm-hmm. wanted to share. So uh, since we're still talking about dogs, I will share another post because this seems to happen often. There's a lot of posts on there about dogs um, who attack other dogs or attack other people when you're walking them. There are people who like to have their dogs off leash and they'll be like, my dog is very friendly. And then all of a sudden their dog's not friendly. (laughs) All of a sudden their dog attacks a smaller dog or a person. Mm -hmm. So um, on the yellow trail in the Wissahickon, this woman was attacked by a very large gray pit bull. And she said the pit bull was on a leash and the woman who was walking the dog told her that the dog had been abused by a tall man and that he should run. This was a man who was attacked. He should run quickly past the dog because she has trouble controlling him. So the guy takes off running and runs, tries to run past the dog, to which the dog immediately perceives danger. Of course. Immediately perceives a threat. Why would you run? Past a dog. Exactly. And so then the dog charges him, breaks free of this woman who's trying to... Restrained him and bit this man in the face. Ouch. Yeah, bit him on the bottom of his chin. Wow. And so, you know, he's basically posting on here because he's trying to find the owner of the dog because he said, the woman says, this is not my dog. I am just a dog walker and he's bleeding. So he doesn't stick around to like get information. Also, the dog is still being hostile and crazy and he's just trying to get away. Mm -hmm. So he didn't stick around. He went home tended to his wounds and is now posting on next door trying to figure out if anybody knows of this dog knows who the owner is because just trying to find out does the dog have his shots should he go get shots etc yeah right right so i see this situation as problematic on like four different fronts first of all yeah you don't tell somebody to run past a dog particularly a dog that's known to be protective territorial and can be spontaneously aggressive 
or even if a dog can't be spontaneously aggressive, don't charge a dog. The advice he was given to run past the dog, A, bad instructions. Secondly, if this woman is a professional dog walker, she should not be walking dogs that she cannot control. Or if she's walking said dog, shouldn't walk the dog where there are going to be people. Because anyone who spent any time in the Wissahickon knows you're not, you don't go to the Wissahickon to be alone. The last time I went on the trail, it was like Party City. It was crazy. I mean, people are cranking tunes and, and are, are loud in the woods. And there's a lot of people who have dogs. Some dogs are nice. I mean, aren't. at least this dog was definitely leashed. This woman was walking the dog on a leash, right? It's just this was not a dog she was physically capable of maintaining, particularly once the dog decided to charge because that's how the dog got away from her. And that's how the dog bit this I man in the face. I guess it goes to show you anyone could be a dog walker. Yeah, I guess so. Um, so this particular post garnered 171 responses. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, and they are also across the board. Um, a lot of people saying the same thing. This woman gave you terrible advice. You should never run past a pit bull um, or any dog for that matter. And other people said, why was she walking a dog that wasn't hers? Is she a dog walker? That's where I found out the woman was a dog walker. Also, she should have been able to subdue the dog and then give you the information you needed. Who is the owner of this dog? Who should you contact to find out did this dog have its shots, etc.? Was it just the only dog that she was walking or did she have like a whole fleet of animals? And it didn't say that she had multiple dogs. Okay. It just said she had this dog. A lot of people were suggesting to file a police report because if you don't file a police report, reports it, it, for it aggressive dogs yeah. exactly right finds because out because if if that dog attacks someone else again then there's a report of that that they can dig back and you know right. connect dots yeah. but if you don't know who the owner is how are you filing a police report well like, it's going to be the description of the animal yeah which maybe I mean, the walker gray pitbull like i don't know yeah i mean there's a lot of people with pitbulls in the neighborhood that's for sure yeah. So, I mean, that was it was just just something interesting. I, I mean, I'm a fan of people being able to walk their animals. Like, I'm not saying don't walk your dog and don't walk your dog in the Wissahickon. I'm just saying there's don't tell people to come running at your animal. Right. <laughs> and and there's a way to responsibly walk animals, oh, I guess. Man. So uh, in other news, everybody who has uh, fall decorations out, particularly in East Mount Airy and East Germantown right now, should be wary because there are. Two or three people who are coming around about 4 a.m. They've been caught on those ring cams, taking scarecrows and fall decorations Jeez. off people's yards. <laughs> so I was like, somewhere they're, I don't know they're what just, they're doing they're with them. They're just borrowing. Are they taking them somewhere <laughs> to make like one giant fall display? I don't know what's happening. But to count just the ones that I saw this morning, this was the latest one. And uh, they posted this about, I don't know, four or five hours ago. And on that are about, 26 comments and of those 26 about half of them are people saying the same thing happened to them um, and either they did get so it on people ring, coming like breaking into the yards and then grabbing scarecrows off and the porch and hay, bale, bales of yeah. hay and all that stuff and pumpkins and yeah uh, okay I just want to find where they're going. Like, I mean, for me, it's a mystery where it's like, why? What is the point of taking those? Like I said, are they starting one big giant display? You know somewhere? what you need to do? You need to go on Craigslist and you need to check and see <laughs> no one's if selling. people are selling <laughs> No, no one's grows. selling hail ba hay, hay, hay <laughs> bales. Of hay. Right. No one's selling ba bales of hay. Pumpkins. And pumpkins. Maybe pumpkin spice lattes. I don't know. I just That's what I'm going to put on my front porch. Here, I found take, that surprising. I mean, I'm used to seeing things where it's like, don't put your bike on your porch because my bike was stolen off my porch or, you know, watch out for your lawn furniture. But like pumpkins and scarecrows. Come on, y'all. 
let let somebody have their well, pumpkin. You know, maybe people are just like, man, that looks so good. That would look even better on my <laughs> front yard. I mean, if that's the case, if you really wanted something that was in my yard, ask me for it. I'm probably going to lend it to <laughs> or you. Or just be like, put give out it extras. To you. Right? Come on, everybody. Just Here chip in. Here you go. Take it. Like, it's no, fine. no, no. This is mine. This is for, you know, just put a sign on it, you know. <laughs> I guess. Feel free to take in the middle of the night. Just not this one. I actually came across uh, one of our neighbors was putting up Halloween decorations and, you know, considering people <laughs> taking stuff off the yard. I guess one of the nice things about Halloween decorations, while well, some of them, they do that webbing mm-hmm. through the bushes. Like, no one's going to take that. Sure. No, that's complicated. Yeah, that's Dan. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's... <laughs> so if you want to do decor, make sure it's webbing in your bushes. And you'll be fine. <laughs> Nobody wants to mess with that business. Tuck, tuck all your decorations underneath the webbing. <laughs> there you go. The last thing I want to bring up from our neighborhood groups today is something that was posted. It's about toxic mothballs. Toxic mothballs? Yes. In out door garden settings like so, people putting yes mothballs out so it says intentionally yes. to do what right i'm gonna tell you okay oh, so this please. evening with friends we discovered naphthalene i think is how you pronounce it mothballs sprinkled in the planting beds in front of um, a couple of banks along the avenue it says these are very toxic and dangerous to pets small children and wildlife With the recent reports of dead squirrels in the neighborhood, which is also something that was posted on here last week and the week before, they're wondering if this is the cause. If this is why all of a sudden squirrels have been ending up dead is because they're eating these mothballs. It says a friend and I collected all the mothballs we could find in these planting beds, secured them in a bag, and threw them in the trash. What is going on? It's like a question mark, okay? Mm -hmm. 64 neighbors commented. Here's where things get interesting. Okay. Right away. Drum roll. Yes. Right away. One of the first comments. So you violated somebody's property because you thought that was best. You stole. I mean, you. Poison. Right. Poison. Things that were poisoning cats or children who might pick one up and eat one. So so just so folks are aware, mothballs, they call them that because you put them in your closet to keep the malls away from eating your clothes because they're toxic. So just so you know, mothballs are bad. Yeah. And now they're just kind of out in the street, which means rainwater can like dissolve them and put them down into the earth and run off into the street and all kinds of things. So the response to that comment was, if you mean me, yes, I did. When I thought there was legitimate concern and the mothballs were right out on the street. A week or so ago, I discovered a neighbor's back fence on fire near the water tower while home residents were asleep. So, yes, I stepped into their yard to put out the fire with their hose. Should I mind my own business and just let their fence endanger the other homes on the street? It's kind of the same thing, right? If you see something that's like So it, it ended danger, up becoming a political debate about property. Correct. Yeah. Like you were in the wrong for taking something off other property. Now... The thing is, is that this is public property. She said this was in front of some banks along Germantown Avenue. So I think there's well, the, I can guarantee the, the bank is, is there. not putting mothballs in their flower beds. Right. Some somebody else probably did. Somebody probably saw it or, or whoever is the community person who's coming around and planting those things near the well, bank. Well, I guess because for the same reason, they're putting them there to kind of keep pests away, perhaps. But right. it's like hot pepper out on yep. the, uh, the sidewalk <laughs> to keep like dogs and other animals away. So I guess it's perhaps the same motivation. Sure. 
Right. Which brings me to like, thank you to the community members who were like, we don't want to kill squirrels and potentially harm children and our rainwater and the ecosystem by leaving these mothballs here. And like, I think that person was in the right to help do that. But I also understand the, like the desire to want to keep the pests away from the the things in front. Okay, you know? so here's the way to solve this problem. Public service announcement, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen of Germantown. Don't use mothballs, please. Sure. There are other ways. <laughs> right. That's what I'm saying. Is I was like, please, please research and find other ways. There are natural ways. Like there the pepper situation. While we think it's a little crazy that there's hot peppers on someone's yard to I mean, keep dogs from peeing. Natural. In it, but it is natural. It's not gonna hurt anybody. The dogs don't like it, so they stay away from it. And nobody pees or in like their yard. Peppermint spray or something like that. Although that stuff it, it doesn't last long. You right? can keep deers off of your um crops by putting hot peppers and, oh, yeah. and stuff in there, but like um like hot sauce. Anyway, so that was that's what was happening over the last couple of weeks on the neighborhood groups that I found interesting and worthy of chatting about and thought I'd let people know about. So there well, it is. Well, very interesting. And thanks for following up on the dog poop. It of was, course. Uh, of course. If you have some thoughts about any of that, you should definitely email us. We have a new email address. That's right. Tell us about it. Um, our email address is what do you know gtown at gmail.com. What do you know gtown at gmail.com. You can email us your thoughts about this because I'd love for you all to join the conversation. Tell us what you think. And where else can folks find us, Mary? Oh, Angela? of course, on Facebook and Instagram, both at what do you know about that. You're listening to 92.9 FM G Town Radio. So what are we talking about today? We have an interesting topic, and that topic is gene therapy. Ooh. Ooh, gene therapy. Some of you may have heard of gene therapy. Some of you may have not. Sounds it's, very science fiction. It, it It's totally science fiction, but as we all know, good science fiction is what breeds science fact. It is the fuel for discovery. And to that point, you know, gene therapy is something that's been long in the making. It's a very broad category of therapeutics or therapies that are unique compared to historical therapies. So again, I, I have some background in this because I've, I've been in the, the pharma industry and gene therapy is very specific to Philadelphia for the, the simple fact that it was sort of birthed here. The the big players within the industry are UPenn that are uh, producing technologies within the gene therapy space. And then you also have Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And that actually was the, the birthplace of what is known as Spark Therapeutics, which you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And they have one of the first FDA approved gene therapies that are currently on the market. But to answer the question, what is gene therapy, you kind of have to take a step back, I think, and consider what are the drugs that are currently on the market. We were talking about this, actually, we were in Fredericksburg this past weekend, and we went into a soda fountain shop, and it used to be an old pharmacy, and they have in the display case these old brown glass bottles with these worn labels on them, right? And they all say Merck, Malincrot. And these are like turn of the century. These are like really basic compounds, salts that were used, I think primarily, if anything, to treat like pain and some disorders, but they, they treated symptoms. And the history of current pharmaceutical industry is kind of designed around that. A lot of it is biological based, meaning there are 
protein-based therapeutics like insulin, for example, that facilitates deficiencies that people have due to health issues that are either they're born with, which are genetically inherited, or in some cases, you know, develop over time during their lifetime. So the industry is basically that. And these therapies, these proteins, they derive them from a biological source. So it's similar to, to use an analogy for folks who might not really understand, it's like brewing beer. So you have a culture of cells, you know, in the case of brewing beer, it's yeast. And then you feed that yeast nutrition so that it produces alcohol and carbon dioxide. Well, the approach for the pharmaceutical industry is not too much different other than those cells that we're culturing. They've been genetically programmed to basically manufacture copies of this protein. So you grow them up in a big fermenter like you would when you're brewing beer, and then you harvest that. So think about the process from taking a big brew tank of beer and then converting it into that lovely little glass bottle of beer that you get when you go to the, the brewery. So there's a process, usually it involves filtration, other technologies to basically separate that fluid containing, in the case of beer, the alcohol and the carbon dioxide, for therapy, it's it's that protein. So it's it, it ends up looking like a little clear solution. Looks like water, but there's a protein in there. You know, so folks who take other medications, right? Usually subcutaneous injections, a needle in the arm. That's what it is. So can I ask a question? Please. How do you genetically program something? Like that's the part that seems like super science fiction to me, where I'm like, do you use a computer and you tell this protein that like, you're going to grow up to be this? Like, I don't understand how you genetically program something. Ah, uh, very, very good question. Well, I think some people, most people perhaps, and maybe I'm wrong, have a, a, a very basic fundamental understanding, right? DNA is the building blocks for everything. And what DNA is, it's, it's a, a genetic code. So if you think of like computer code as binary, zeros and ones, genetic code is actually, uh, it's got four parts to it. So those are the, uh, the backbone elements that are complementary that create these base pairs. That's the long strain of DNA. And it's combinations of those, really long combinations like the zeros and ones that spell out a word. Those long combinations of base pairs print out instructions to make proteins. So proteins for everyone's understanding are the key elements that facilitate all the chemical reactions in your body. Every metabolic pathway in your body from translating a smell that hits your nose to your brain to all the subconscious functions like digesting food and everything, it's all facilitated by proteins. In terms of how we edit DNA, we look at the biological mechanism. So when cells split apart, and for forgive me, I don't want to go too deep here, but when they split apart, DNA has a whole series of steps in which it unzips itself and makes copies of itself, basically making a printed uh, carbon copy and then creates a new cell. That process we can use in the lab, those facilitate either silencing certain genes or inserting new genes within a strain of DNA. So you basically create your custom program so that you can make a cell that produces that specific protein. Now, gene therapy is a little more complex. Okay. That. Tell me if I'm getting too deep here. <laughs> I will. All right. Gene therapy, and there's many categories to it. 
universally it's about modifying a deficiency or say an improper code that's being expressed, right? There's certain things that don't translate, you know, from your parents, either you're inheriting some genetic illness. So again, it's either a defect in the coding or it's an absence of a piece of code, which codes for a specific protein. So if that protein's missing, you think of your metabolic pathway, it's like walking down a set of steps. If there's a step missing, you're going to fall through the floor. Right. That's what happens in genetic illnesses. There's a protein missing in a metabolic pathway. So gene therapy seeks to replace that protein. Now the difference is, is historically we make the protein and then people like say for insulin will take that protein because they're insulin deficient. But gene therapy takes a step further and it says, you know what, I'm going to reprogram the body to produce this. So it becomes another level where you're utilizing the patient's own ability to heal itself. So instead of growing up a cell in a cell culture to produce that protein, well, we're just going to reprogram your cells. Your cells become the factory like it should, and it produces that that missing protein. It's hmm. kind of wacky. It's super crazy. Now, there's a number of different ways you can do it. So you may have seen, and this goes back years, actually, and just to give folks a little history here, you had the decoding of the human genome. And then from that, once we mapped out the human genome, we're able to identify specific genetic sequences tied to illnesses. So then all these pharmaceutical companies rushed to get a piece of that. And gene therapy really started taking off uh, in the early 90s. And that was, again, going back to UPenn and Jim Wilson's lab, the case that I think got a lot of attention and kind of put the brakes on gene therapy initially was in 1999, 18-year-old Jesse Gelsinger, who had signed up for an experimental gene therapy trial at the University of Penn. Uh, he had a genetic condition known as, or, or, and forgive me, I cannot pronounce this to save my life, ornithine transcarbonylase deficiency, the disease caused by a genetic mutation comprised or compromised his liver abil ability to break down toxic ammonia, which would accumulate in his blood. Mm. But when it was administered to him, he, he died and it was due to an immune response. So there was a lot of research went back into the lab to re-engineer some of these therapies to... So the introduction of the gene therapy triggered his immune system, which then just... Basically, you know, I could probably take a whole episode and, and kind of delve into sure. how your immune system works, but just to spare our listeners, uh, really to focus on the gene therapy piece, there's, an, again, a number of ways that we can administer them, but one of the more common vehicles... So we talked about proteins being the therapy. Now we talk about some genetic information being the therapy. We're using genetic information to introduce new genetic information into your cells. One way to do that is to use a virus. So what's interesting about a virus is it's not really living, it's not dead, but it's a, a capsule of genetic information that's in, inside, think of it like a, a pill that you would take. So the exterior that holds the genetic information is made out of proteins. It's like a shell. And those proteins, they act in combination like a key. So when they approach specific cells that have the, say, receiving lock, that key goes in that lock, it opens the cell, and then the virus can go in. But instead of infecting the cell, it's been reprogrammed or engineered to deliver a specific piece of genetic information 
that helps yourselves. So hmm. it's. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, I get it. I hear what you're saying. Still sounds like Star Trek to me. It still <laughs> sounds like, like, how are we doing this? This, I mean, I think it's great because obviously, you know, these people with these genetic disorders and, and illnesses really don't have any other recourse, right? There's no other way to treat a genetic disorder. I mean, you can treat the symptoms like you talked about. There are medications you can take to like, you know, treat the symptoms and let you try and live your life the best you can in this way. But being able to come at it from a like, maybe we can actually minimize the effect of this genetic illness by making it so that you don't have that problem anymore, that deficiency anymore. Right. And the idea is that it's a one and done treatment so that rather than supplementing your body with something that's missing by taking, you know, therapy treatments, like say uh, every other day, in some cases folks have to, or every once a week or something, you do a, a one and done because you've now mutated your DNA. It's, it's <laughs> like, it to, that's the sci-fi that part. That like mutated your DNA. So uh, you've, again, you've either silenced a piece of your DNA that's, that's incorrect, or you've inserted a piece of DNA uh, to express a protein that's missing. The challenge is the industry mm -hmm. is still very young. You know, we had successful trials in um, just before the turn of the century, but then, you know, there's a lot of companies that are moving in, that are investing money, that are uh, licensing technology from both CHOP and UPenn that are partnering with these organizations. And this is all happening in Philadelphia, mind you. So Philadelphia really is the mecca for gene therapy. And I expect that, I mean, there's already a number of large pharmas in the area. There's GSK, there's Merck, but you're going to see more of these gene therapy companies popping up and more likely in the downtown area. You know, there's real estate that's across from Drexel. There's incubator labs, folks working on these technologies, and they're partnering with larger companies uh, to try and bring them to market. Um, again, like the challenge always is, it, it's the life cycle of a drug is usually about 10 years from conception to actually making it to market. And nine out of 10 fail primarily because of safety concerns. Sure. I mean, yeah, we don't want to. <laughs> I mean, how many times have we been watching a show on TV and they'll be like, here's a class action lawsuit against, I mean, what was the one that I was so surprised about? It was the um, the drug for like uh, heartburn. Um, I want to say it's Zyrtec, but that's the allergy medicine. It's the other <laughs> one. It, has, it starts with a Z. Anyway, but after 35 years of being on the market, they were like, oh, actually, all these people who were getting stomach cancers, we think it was actually oh, this yeah. drug. And this, didn't they suspect that maybe that's how Mr. Rogers got stomach cancer? Yeah, I mean, and I'm thinking about, you know, I have a a, a family friend who died when he was 36 years old. Um, he was my age, so I was 36 at the time also. Um, and it blew me away. He had stomach cancer. And when this all came out, his mother let us know that, yeah, he had been taking this drug for a long time because he had a stressful job and he had a lot of heartburn. And yeah. so he was just taking it. Zantac. Zantac. That was okay. the name of it. Zantac. Okay. Um, and so now there's like, you know, class action suit against it. And I'm like, wow, that was 35 years. Um, but well, do you think that, so you say like 10 years, right, is usual for, you know, a drug to start and come to market and safety concerns and all that good stuff. But with this technology, do you think by the turn of the next century that gene therapies could be the way we we treat people like the real the, the true form of i don't know medications 
Oh, totally. But it's constantly evolving. There's a number of hurdles right now that we have to overcome. So there's the science piece of it. And then let's talk about the market. It's still very early. There's still a lot of discovery and learning that needs to be done. And some of the hurdles are tied to regulatory pieces, um, getting approval, unifying how we treat gene therapies, because the way, say, researchers who are, who are developing these or pharmaceutical companies are developing these in Europe and Japan, they have a different approach to how they do, say, clinical trials and how they manage um, you know, patient populations and things like that. So finding some uniformity across the board to, to make them more accessible globally, you know, um, that's one piece. And uh, I, I think some of the approaches that we're using currently now um, just from a manufacturing perspective, being able to, like I was saying, take that that big tank of fermented broth and then convert it into a, a bottled beer, there's a lot that goes on in between that, uh, especially for biologics. There's a lot of challenges that we have to overcome in order to make them safe enough to put into people's bodies. You know, Because we're deriving them from biological sources, we have to be concerned about the presence of things like other viruses or toxins that could be normally present in a biological environment that we have to show clearance of as part of, um, say, releasing a, uh, what we would call a batch. Yeah, I totally think that's the future. I think what we uh, would like to see ideally would be, say, and I'm giving you a hypothetical, what if you were um, injured and an ambulance came to pick you up and you needed a life-saving therapy that was specific to you, that they would be able to have some kind of biological system set up in order to produce that therapy right there on the spot and then inject you with it versus having to go through this whole manufacturing it and then shipping it out and distributing it because there's all this in between that we have to manage things like cold chain. And this is something that came up for folks who've been paying attention to uh, say vaccine and how we manage vaccine rollout. So consider, and I don't mean to go off on a tangent here, but I think it's important to listeners. There's a lot of discussion about it, right? And one of those, I think being around how we distribute it globally. Okay. It, it's one thing to purchase a, a volume of vaccine to send to a country, but considering some of these countries don't have a means of storing it, most of these biologics, we have to keep them very, very cold because otherwise they'll spoil. It's, it's like food. So we have to manage what we call cold chain, which is we keep it in the minus 80 freezer here. And then where we ship it, we make sure we ship it on dry ice. So we keep it frozen for a certain duration of time until we can take it to a facility to manage it. So then think about that logistically becomes more challenging in countries that don't have facilities like that to manage. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about the pharmaceutical industry and how much money it brings in every year. I mean, there's there. I mean, the saying is there's big there's money in big pharma. Like, I mean, that's why they call it big pharma, <laughs> because they're like, oof, you're making a lot of money in this. But I wonder if a gene therapy is a one and done, right? If you can use a gene therapy and give it to somebody and then somebody's not ill anymore, right? What will that do fiscally to big pharma? Because they then, I mean, yes, they can charge whatever they charge for that one and done amount, but like they make their money off of repeatedly, you know, medication. When, when somebody's on a medication forever or for a long time, they're making money off of all these people that are on this drug for X number of months, years, whatever. And now all of a sudden you're saying, oh, I can get a treatment that's like one shot and 
I don't need it anymore? That's a really good question. And considering that if you look at the demographic right now, where gene therapy is really targeted, a lot of them are orphan diseases. Mm -hmm. So ones that have very small patient populations, but we see there's a need there. So there's right now it's, I think there's the humanitarian aspect that's driving right now. And with the technology being very new and innovative, and it's like I said, constantly evolving. Um, if you think of it, and again, I'm not a marketing person, but if I were to throw my marketing hat on uh, as a pharmaceutical company, if I'm looking to maintain some kind of you know cash flow to, <laughs> to, to fund the, the business and, and keep in mind too, yeah, it's like any industry. There's people at the top and, and they do make a lot of money. Um, and certainly there is a lot of business in pharmaceuticals, but I, I don't want to let, let that overshadow the importance and value that I think a lot of people really see in these therapies. Obviously, you know, we're, we're looking at ways to, to treat illness, not because we're necessarily trying to make money as we're trying to improve the quality of life. But the other challenge to that piece is, and one of the hurdles of gene therapy is right now it's really expensive to make. Sure. So like, for example, I mean, that's my point is like, it's, it's expensive. Yeah, Where so, does the money come from if you only need right. it once? So part of, part of the expense is making it and then managing that material after you make it. And then the other expense, of course, is tied to the administration of it. So right. when you go into the hospital, because the hospital is basically the middleman between you and the pharma company who's administering the drug, those people get paid as well. Right. So there's that piece of it. And a, a lot of the therapies right now, it's not say you just walk in, you get a shot and you're out the door. You come in, you're given treatment and put under observation. But we've seen some huge benefit from it. Like like Jimmy Carter had CAR T cell therapy for skin cancer. Completely, mm. you know, he's in complete remission from it. But in order to make money from it, you have to diversify. So if you, you're you targeting limited patient population, maybe you have a number of therapies that are in your umbrella, if you will, that cater to a, a, a broader population. Some of the approaches that we can take can cast a broad net in terms of how we administer them to patients or what kinds of patients can receive them. It's certainly an exciting time, especially for folks who live in Philadelphia. Nice. Well, I look forward to seeing where this goes. I know I won't be alive at the turn of the next century. I mean, unless I live to be like 150. You never know. There might be a gene therapy for that. <laughs> right? Who knows? But um, but yeah, I'll be excited to see where this goes in my lifetime. Well, thanks for, for telling me all about that um, and telling us all about that. I had no idea. About well, and that. I know, you know, we really just scratched the surface here. There's so much to talk about. Again, I, I don't profess that I know everything that there is to know about gene therapy. But if you have any comments, any input, any thoughts, please message us. Gtown at gmail.com. Or what do you know about that on Facebook and Instagram? It's time now for Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? Uh, the part of our program where we talk to musicians from Philadelphia uh, and the surrounding areas. And today we are joined by, introduce yourself. My name is Matt Spitko. Welcome, Matt, to the studio. Thanks, Mary Angela. Thanks for being <laughs> Thanks, here. Eric. Yeah, man. Uh, start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Where are you from? What's Ooh, going on? Um, I'm like pretty Philly. But I grew up in Norristown. Okay. I've been living in, um, let's say, the Maniunk, Germantown area for the last, like, 15 years. Nice. So it's been a few minutes since <laughs> I've been here. How long have you been making music? Uh, let's see. I mean, 
really all my life, but professionally for about mm, 12, 13 years, something like that. Right. You were bartending first, right? And then something happened. There was that moment that you decided to make the switch. Oh, yeah. Well, I was bartending and the place that I used to work, it was a place out in Bluebell, now defunct. But we used to get all these great blues musicians, jazz musicians that would come in. Specifically, the guys that really stuck out to me, it was like Joe Alves, great guitar player. I'm not sure if you, if you know Joe. I haven't seen Joe in a long time. Hmm. And Steven Russo, who I later studied with for years. Yeah, I was working there. It was like after college, I had another job, and I was still playing soccer. I took an errant elbow to the face. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah, I was probably like 24. 425 when that happened so i mean we're talking 15 years ago <laughs> what was that <laughs> we'll never 15, tell 15 years ago do the math right but yeah so I, I i took an elbow to the face broke my jaw and my jaw was subsequently surgically wired shut for six weeks but but in that moment you decided you wanted to be a musician full-time yeah well it was yeah i mean it was actually um the day I got all the gear out of my skull, <laughs> I was I had to go to work that day too because I was like managing the restaurant at that point, and I was driving to work and like opened my mouth to sing for the first time in like two months, and it and I just like was like oh, <laughs> just had a you know one of those light bulb moments where this is awesome. what I should be doing. That's actually a really good story. I didn't know that sometimes you just have to take an elbow in the face to realize what you yeah. really want to do with your life. Get your teeth knocked sideways. Yeah. I recommend it to anybody. <laughs> but you were bartending and you were looking to make the transition. And then, oh, yeah. and then there was an opportunity that presented itself for you to make your album, your first album, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Tell us all, about it. That was all about that time. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I had I'd been like kind of working toward that for I was just trying to get better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cuz I like I just at that time I just didn't think I just had this feeling like I wasn't ready to do it and then I met some people who were able to help me with that process and, that, and a lot of that happened at the Dawson at the Grape Room. Yep. Meeting those people, you know, so I met our our buddy Russ and then uh, Russ Eisenlor for the listeners. And then um, Russ introduced me to Barry McGuire, who ultimately I made that first record with. Right. And remind me, what's the title of that album? At Love With War. Yeah. And there was some some pretty notable tracks on that album that actually got some some pretty decent media attention, right? Well, the fir- the yeah, the one track that got some love was um, a lot of work to do. It's just the I think the last track on that record. And it's kind of like uh, upbeat, kind of positive vibes that was uh, used uh, during the World Series. I forget what year, baseball World Series. So that was cool. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. That's awesome. <laughs> that, yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> but. Since then, you've been just just active playing out on the scene, um, mostly staying in the Philly area. Have you, you've, have you have you traveled? Yeah, I mean, I've traveled um, here and there, but mostly like a lot of the work that I do, like the regular stuff, 
that pays well is, you know, tends to be around yeah. the greater Philly area. So, I mean, I end up working like in the city, city suburbs, um, Delaware, Jersey, New York here and there. Yeah. So I'm sure you get this question a lot. If you were to describe your sound, what would you call it? Yeah, I feel like that's evolving ever. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, the influences are lots of Americana, folk, blues, rock. Definitely. Yeah. Yep. You can hear it. I think all that stuff's kind of in there. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about what you like about being a musician in in this area. Or mm. you could tell us. Well, you don't like if you're not into it. Well, <laughs> no pressure. No, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, Philly. I mean, being a musician in Philly has has actually been a great kind of place to um, to be a full time musician because, unlike other places in the country, I can do it and, like, you know, I do like lots of cover gigs, which really, in my perspective, has always been like getting paid to practice, which is great. And so, I mean, f- the Philly area has been fantastic for that because i've i've stayed busy for quite a few years now and it's given me the opportunity to get better and better and i've made a couple records in the meantime and you know still working on things i still really love what i do so that's that's the super part. important yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was like the day you wake up and be like i'm not here for this anymore yeah the day you have to rethink things true and that i mean really to me like that's the best part of being a musician period and you know the community around philadelphia for for what i do what we do i feel like is very strong it's segmented at times i feel like there are different areas of the city where but I mean, that's probably everywhere but certainly like that area that we're talking about specifically, like Maniunk, Roxborough, Germantown, like this whole swath mm-hmm. kind of has its own thing and kind of cross-pollinates a little bit. And, and, you know, people are always, always have been supportive, you know, so that's, that's what I love about it. So, okay, let's maybe go back, say, a year and a half. <laughs> Pandemic. <laughs> What happened for you specifically? Well, I mean, like everybody else, the world kind of stopped. It was all very um, challenging because, you know, my income stopped overnight, <laughs> which, you know, and at that time I I didn't have another source of income really. Actually, right before the pandemic, and you know this firsthand, I started working with my friend George, who has a construction business. and. Um, I had fortunately I'd seen seen him around the holidays in 2019 going into 2020. And he said, Hey, like, I, I really need help. Like, do you, do you want to help me out? And I was like, yeah. Like it was just, I was at a point where I was like, Oh, I could, you know, definitely use some extra funds and try to save some money, pay off bills, whatever. Um, so that ended up being like the huge blessing of the pandemic for me because we were clear to work. And I mean, we, you know, we just made sure we observed protocols, we masked up, we stayed safe. And most of the time, actually, we were working outside, which in hindsight was probably why I didn't get sick, although, <laughs> although George did. Oh, no. But I, th- I think I actually had it before that. 
but other than that, I mean, musically, it was just a time, uh, like, you know, a lot of guitar practice. I don't often sing a lot. You know, if I'm, if I really need to practice a tune, I'll, I'll sing, but it's not like I'm going out and singing for an hour or two or three. Right. During that period. So it was great for vocal rest. <laughs> right. It was but, fantastic. But you, you've been keeping active with recording, though, during that time. That is true. Yeah, actually, I guess it would have been um, last, I'm going to say May, like May of 2020, I think, was the first time I was back in the studio. And I think that was the first time for everybody in the band, you know, as well as some of the session players that we brought in. So that, I mean... That would have been myself, Matt Muir, playing drums and producing. Jason Jonick, I think, came in around that time. Brendan McGeehan came in, played bass. Adam and Flick Flicker. And yeah. Adam Flicker came in. And I think that was the first time all of us had been anywhere playing anything in quite a while. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it was great to have that day. And, you know... It was strange because we were just like everybody's masked up and it's, you know, there, you could sense like some of the apprehension, mm-hmm. but we banged out a really cool track. <laughs> so, and I that mean, was the Tom Petty cover, right? That you did, or was that different? Um, early, um, February of this year is when we released the Tom Petty track. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that got some play on XPN too. Yeah. 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 That's, that's cool. a good track. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I like it a lot. Well, it's really cool because you you took what was kind of an upbeat Tom Petty tune and you put a, a different feel to it, a little more yeah. introspective almost kind of feel. You know, the we we were in um Retro City Studios and it was around the time of like the election. Mm-hmm. I came in and I didn't really have anything I was hot on recording. I just felt like it was a moment to try something and I'd never recorded a cover. So I suggested that song to Maddie. He's like, you got to change it up. And I was like, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. I was a little apprehensive about that. You know, I didn't want to bastardize a Tom Petty song, but I think it feels cool. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't call it a bastardization at all, you know, because as a theater person, right, I'm always taking playwrights material and sometimes turning it on its head. And I think the same thing. I'm like, oh, my yeah. God, this playwright's going to would roll over in his grave if he saw what I did to this I work. Know. Right. Where you're like, oof. But then there are times when you you nail something and you're like, no, this makes sense. And I don't know. I always I just thought that song was appropriate for the feel of the time oh, i no heard doubt. it and was like yes oh, to thanks. all of this i'm glad to hear that because i didn't really know at the time like we thought at the end of the day we got some raw tracking done and i was like this could be cool and i feel like maddie and i both felt that way but it turned out i think it turned out better than i could have expected which is cool so tell us a little bit about the track that you brought with you today for us to to play oh yeah, uh, yeah. so that track which i guess is tentatively titled money drugs and war just based on the chorus and this hasn't been released yet no this one still hasn't either and this one actually started like well before even the tom petty track oh wow yeah i don't know why i haven't released it yet i think i was just kind of waiting to to have like a couple of tunes to kind of like throw an ep together and get and get things out but you know things were a little slower than expected with the pandemic anyway you know that that tune is just sort of a reflection of of that time period too. I think it probably sounds a little bit angrier than anything else I've ever done. 
still. But, you know, that was a time where I was like, um, I think like a lot of people, I was just kind of frustrated. But the the thing that that I like about that song is though it's like kind of angry, it's it's not just straight up anger. It's it's a critique. Ultimately, it's it's just a critique of the media, which I think is the biggest problem across the board. Super timely right now. I mean, yeah. super timely for the last like yeah. three years. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and honestly, when you asked me if, if if I had a track or something I wanted to share, I've been sitting on that one the longest and I felt like it was kind of timely. So and the name of the track is let's say money, drugs and war. All right. So nice. We're going to listen to it. Yeah. We're going to take a listen to my decision. <laughs> that's my, that's it. All right. Awesome. All right. So Matt Spicka, everybody, money, drugs and war. Take a listen.
So at the end of the song, because we were talking about this earlier, you have this really cool chant that's happening in the background. How, oh, how did right. you end up recording that again? I think that, so we split that between studio and like my home studio. So that vocal I think was recorded at my home studio. Oh, wow. So you've done recording for this song. This was recorded over here on Retro City, right? Correct. So yeah. for folks who don't know in the neighborhood, it's right on Green Street right here uh, in Germantown. So Yeah, and it's they've made that place so awesome. Yeah, it's a really cozy spot. It's great. No it's like, it's one of my favorite studios in the city. I've only, I mean, I've only really worked at a handful, but in this, in this area, there's nothing like it. Well, uh, we want to thank you so much for talking with oh, us. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Being our, our featured musician this week. Thanks um, for having me. I look forward to, to checking you out and around. Um, we did an episode recently about sort of the arts returning. Have you played out much since things are kind of getting back? I do have one thing coming up in November um, with my friend Vinny Paolizzi, and that's going to be... Um, oh, he's coming up from Nashville. He is, yes. Oh, cool. Um, so that's going to be November 17th at 118 North in, in Wayne. Nice. I have yet to go there. Uh, that might be a good excuse for me to head out. Yeah, it's, that's a cool little space. Yeah, I'd love to check it out. Now, are there places that you've been playing at fairly regularly? Like if someone wanted to catch you? Yeah, actually, um, I mean, the closest thing would be um, Deke's Barbecue right here in Germantown off of Wayne Avenue. Nice. Oh, yeah. So I do that every Sunday um 5 p.m to 8 p.m oh that's awesome i did not know that thank you <laughs> sorry i hadn't told you that <laughs> no yet. you hadn't told me All that right, so that's a, no yeah idea. that's a relatively new thing i've only been doing that for and certainly weeks. yeah relevant to it we love us some deeks yeah. <laughs> now we got even more reason and they, yeah <laughs> the, the food's good it's a good spot good people well thanks again for being with us it's been a great time talking to you so thank get you to know guys. the musicians in your neighborhood y'all yeah so matt spicko <laughs> Any suggestions as far as for listeners where folks can find your music? Really anywhere you, you stream digital. My website's just mattspicko.com. Cool. Find Great. stuff there. Well, Matt Spicko, thank you so much for coming in. Appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Mary Angela. Well, thanks everyone for joining us again for What Do You Know About That? Please tune in again in two weeks. We'll have another episode ready for you. Yeah, we'll talk uh, about some neighborhood stuff. We'll talk about another topic and meet another musician. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening.